I'd like to turn again to the Gospel of Matthew at chapter 27 and reading at verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Especially those words, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. None of the Gospel writers gives us very much information about what actually happened at the crucifixion. None of the gruesome details, not even the flogging, are described in any details. It's been left to the imagination of men to, to write books about them and just to describe what happens. But the Gospel writers themselves don't give us those details. It's not their object when writing these Gospels to provoke an emotional response in us as we read them. They are simply telling us the facts as they occurred and as they experienced them during those days and those hours. Although many hymn writers have, have spoken about these events and have given their, their own interpretation of them. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down that ere such love and sorrow meet or thorns composed so rich a crown. And we get there from the hymn writers these aspects of the experience that they have drawn in to what we understand of the crucifixion. Uh, but they are not what actually happened. They are only the imagination of those hymn writers who have written these hymns for us to sing or to think about and meditate on. And that's why I personally think that, that as we sing, read God's word and sing God's word, we have the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, and it's my preference to, to engage in, in such praise of God in his own words and in his own literature. It's almost as though for the, for the writers of the Gospels, it's, it's too sacred a thing to talk of what actually happened there at Golgotha. It's almost as though it's holy ground, as, as when Moses goes uh, and is told to take his feet, shoes from his feet because he's standing on holy ground. Well, here also the gospel writers seem to have that, that same feeling. It's holy ground, what they're, they're seeing, what they're experiencing, what they've been told. And, and they will tell simply the bare facts of what actually occurred. Matthew is, is hardly able to write the words as he draws the picture for us. And sitting down, and they watched him there. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the onlookers. He's talking about John and the women who were there. Mary, Mary Magdalene, Life of Cleopas, they were there watching. He's talking about the soldiers as they sat at the cross, dividing his garments, 
scribes and Pharisees, they all sitting down, watched him there. This, this wasn't a, a short-term event. It lasted from the third hour to the ninth hour. Normally it would have been in the heat of the midday sun, but actually, as we know, for three of those hours there was total darkness and blackness over the whole situation. The Son of God loving me and giving himself for me. As someone has said, it, it was enough to make the earth tremble. Remember the earthquake that occurred as the Lord said it is finished and dismissed his spirit. You remember the three hours of darkness as, as the sun hid his face from what was happening there at Golgotha. And we have to ask, who is this? They watched him there. Who is this person that Matthew here is talking about? Once again, we can ask hymn writers, and they will quote at him, Who is this in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story, tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall, crowd him, crowd him, Lord of all. Who is this? Well, as John says in his gospel, it is the Lamb of God bearing away the sin of the world. They watched him there. He came to bear the sin of many. But yet his, his birth went totally unnoticed in the world to which he came. The only people who noticed were those whom God had revealed these things to. The shepherds, having the knowledge given to them by the angels, the wise men who had perceived a sign far away and had traveled many miles to come and see for themselves, Herod, who had been advised by the wise men and then spent the next few months trying to destroy every child under two years of age. He came to his own and his own received him not. Uh, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. To them that believed on his name. Once again, we see here the gospel is, is something that is, is conditional. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. If you believe on his name, he gives you power to become a children of God. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened gospel has this condition. All things have been done and are open to us. And yet there remains something that we have to do. He has made us willing in a day of his power. He's even given us the ability to, to respond uh, to all that he has done. 
but we have to engage in, in an activity of response. During the Lord's life, he went about doing good. He went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Healing, having compassion, having mercy on all, and his reward. Hands that had always blessed, and hands that had always been lifted up in healing, are pierced with nails. And from men, a crown of thorns is their only acclamation in total mockery and mocking of him. And also the cry, crucify him, crucify him. And there he is. He's dying there with shame and disgrace for you and for me. And so where is he? What kind of place is Golgotha, this place where the King of Glory died? And why did he die on the cross? Well, crucifixion, as you can imagine, is a very harsh and, and brutish form of death. In the eyes of both the Jews and, and the Gentiles, they saw it differently. No Jew could think of, of such a death. No Jew could imagine such a death without feeling ashamed, even offended, and yet they crucified their Lord. His offense was so great in their eyes that they gave one of their own, a Jew, to the accursed death of the cross. They knew the shame and the disgrace that such a death pronounced upon the man being hung there, and yet they gave him one of their own to that death. It's amazing that something so un-Jewish could have been prophesied centuries before the coming of Christ. It was a Roman punishment. And yet, three, four, five centuries before Rome was ever thought of it being an occupation over Palestine, this was prophesied, that these events would come to pass, and here they are coming to pass in the experience of the Lord of glory. He gave his back to the smiters, his face to scorn and spitting, and they crucified him in the place of the skull, as you read, in the place called Golgotha. It was the rubbish heap of Jerusalem. Not some sanctified Calvarios. Calvarios is, a, is, is the word that the, the Latin scriptures use, and we, that's where we get our Calvary from. There's a place of victory and, and a place of, of beauty and, and a place of, of something to be admired. It's not that. It's just a rubbish heap. And that's where the Lord of glory is crucified. Gordon's tomb and and the nearby Gordon's Calvary are sanitized and they're places of beauty and peace and, and places where you can rest and, and meditate. That's not what Golgotha was. And there, 
He stripped him of his clothes and nailed him naked to the cross. No one who was crucified could escape the shame and the disgrace of such a death. Yet we're told it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. I want to ask yet, why was he there? We've asked, who is the him? Who's there, speaking of the, of the verse? Uh, we've asked uh, what the place was, uh, the place where he was crucified. And why was he there? Why was he on the cross there in Golgotha? Or why did the Son of God have to die on a cross? Two others died there, and they were rightly judged to have been punished for the insurrection and the murder they committed, and they were committed to the cross there, and they deserved the wages of their sin. But Pilate found no fault in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews couldn't even get two men to agree upon the accusations that they brought against him. We told Judas cried, I have destroyed, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate's wife called him that just man after having had experience of him in a dream. Nothing worthy of death was found in him. But yet he's on the cross. And he's on the cross on account of sin, not his own but ours, yours and mine. He's paying at the wages of sin, not his own, but yours and mine. Moment by moment, the Lord had to withstand the devil's suggestions and temptations. The whole of that time on the cross, as the Lord said, this is your hour, the hour of the power of darkness. And they did their utmost to destroy the Lord mentally, physically, emotionally, even spiritually, while he was there. He did his utmost. So the Lord had to summon all his own human strength and choose pain and continue his own journey into the terrifying unknown of what lay before him. Samuel Rutherford, speaking of God's eyes being a purer eye than to behold iniquity, imagines uh, the Lord Jesus Christ crying out to his father, Is there not a word, dear father? Is there not a look? And he imagines the father saying, No, not a look, but for a word. So that's why he's there. He's there for the world. So above all, the Lord had to taste death for every man. Not simply die, but taste death. He came into this world to taste death for every man. And that's why he took so long dying. That's why he had to, to die 
without that mixture of gall and vinegar that he was offered to drink. When he tasted it, he realized it was a sedative and which would, which would calm his mind and his feelings and, and enable him to go through the whole experience without pain, perhaps even without thought. And yet that wasn't what his intentions were. He had to experience dying. He had to experience it from the inside in the same way that we have to experience death. He had to die without the help of paid, deadening drink of sour wine. He had to walk as we do through the valley of the shadow of death, tasting death, savoring all the fear, savoring all the, the agonies of death, tasting his power. We're told that no one could take his life away from him. He had to lay it down of himself. And it wasn't until he cried, it is finished, that he dismisses his spirit. And also, as we think of this aspect, that he actually dismisses his spirit. He could have come down on the cross, off the cross. We're told that he could summon 12 legions of angels from his father. And they would come down and, and release him and restore his life to him. He knew that he could have saved himself. But where then was the work that his father had given him to do? What a cry from the pit that must have been when he heard the cry, come down of the cross. Remember he has all power to come down of it. He could have saved himself, and then he wouldn't have been able to save others. And that's a consideration that has to go through his whole mind and his whole emotions as he's there on the cross, knowing this, this word of temptation is coming straight from the pit. Scribes, the Pharisees, the people crying, he saved others, let him save himself, come down off that cross. He has full power to do so. So I said, where then? The salvation of mankind. He had a choice to save himself or to save others. So how did the cross enable him to save others from an accursed death, a death without God? Well, it had an effect upon sin. The sin you commit, I commit, the sin of all those who have gone before us have committed. Paul's sin, your sin, my sin, all of us. It frees us from the punishment of sin. It frees us from its curse, from the kingdom of darkness, and open a new and living way into the life that Christ has purchased for us. Philippians tells us that he became obedient unto death, even the accursed death of the cross. 
your curse to death and my curse to death, he took on himself. He died to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. And so also the cross has an effect upon God. And that's where the, the real Godward effect has to have some bearing in our thinking upon what Christ is doing there on the cross. He offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. He pays all our debts. It's by the cross that you and I are redeemed. Redeemed from sin, redeemed to God. Now, to redeem implies cost. I'm sure you've all heard about the fact that when slaves are redeemed, there has to be a purchase price. Well, we were slaves to sin and we have been redeemed. Redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It's by the cross that he dies for us. We're told that grace is extravagant, wasteful, but it's free. But it's not cheap. Grace is never cheap. It's always costly. We are saved by faith alone but not by faith which is alone because we're saved by a costly grace God willing to go to the cross for us we ourselves must live sacrificial lives so often we forget that aspect of the demands that are made on us. We forget the responsibility and the response that we're supposed to carry as we, as we go through this journey of salvation. God is willing to go to the cross which is costly. On the other hand, Cheap grace is non-costly grace on God's part and on ours. From a non-holy God who loves and accepts us just as we are and our response in living a life just as we want to live without any corresponding thought or acceptance of what God requires of us. There's a man, some of you will know, called James Montgomery Boyce. He was to America what Lloyd-Jones, I suppose, was to this country. And he writes very insightfully these words. That's the fatal defect in the life of Christ's church in the 20th and 21st century. A lack of true discipleship. It means forsaking everything to follow Christ. That many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity 
there's actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means in some circles there's very little genuine Christianity. Almost as the Lord is saying there, many will say of you, will say unto me, Lord, Lord. And I will say, I never knew you. This I have done for you. What have you done for me? Christ was once crucified for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so these words of Matthew's gospel bring us face to face with these two words, him and there. We cannot but be overwhelmed when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ and all it meant for him to be there. What must, as I asked earlier, what must of the onlookers thought, the soldiers, probably unthoughtful, the priests and the scribes, vengeful, full of hate, the people looking on, wondering what they had been accomplices to, the mother and her sisters and the beloved disciple John, seeing him and weeping over him on the cross, dying in agony, and yet not fully understanding the reason why. In my place condemned, he dies on the cross. He had so set his heart to redeem the children of men that there was no price he was not prepared to pay. He took our place, he bore our debt, he took our guilt, he bore our punishment, dying the death that you and I deserve to die. So what's the consequence of the Lord's death for you and for me? What response should there be in you and me? As we hear the most wonderful story ever told, He died to die no more, never again. Will he know suffering and shame? Never again will he be the despised Nazarene. The next time we see him, he will be surrounded by all the insignia of the Godhead. The honor, the power, the authority, the glory of the triune God. Because he was obedient unto death, even the accursed death of the cross, he is crowned with glory and honor and is at God's right hand. He ever lives to make intercession for us at God's right hand, a prince and a savior forevermore. But he died so that we will never die. The curse that was pronounced on Adam in the first commandment he was given 
in the garden in the day that you eat of it you will surely die didn't come to pass upon him as he looked forward and anticipated the death of Christ and it won't happen on any who today look to that death and place their trust and confidence in it receiving and resting upon him alone for their salvation he died so that we never die he comes to be without God so that we will never be in that situation we will never be without God if we are in Christ Jesus when the Lord Jesus Christ made himself nothing he came to the situation at the end of his life when there was nobody there was nothing no, no favor no comfort no fellowship no even knowledge of his own sonship that will never happen to those who are in Christ Jesus if you and I are a son or a daughter that experience will never be ours but there's more than that the reason the Holy Spirit came is because he is the Lord's purchased possession. The reason today that the Holy Spirit indwells all those who are Christ is because that he purchased it by his death. Remember his words. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. It is expedient that I go. But if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Just a few words in conclusion here. The one who was as no other man ever was had come to the place to which no other man ever came and the reason why that he might die for the sin of the world surely that's good news surely that's the news that you and I can carry out of this place into the needy world outside surely it's the news for all those who are yet without Christ here and who need a saviour. May the Lord then bless these thoughts to us. We shall conclude now singing to God's praise in Psalm 150, the second version of that psalm, which you'll find on page 196. Praise God in his holy temple. Praise the Lord in heaven's high. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his majesty. We'll sing these three stanzas to God's praise. Praise God in
Spirit, one God, rest on you and abide in you now and always.